the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and my companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. This is God's word. Let me pray for us one more time. Gracious Father, thank you for the Psalms. Thank you that we've got to spend now five weeks in these, um, learning so much about who you are and learning so much about um, what you call us to. Thank you for the emotion of the Psalms. Thank you that they're very real and they deal with real emotions like anger and real emotions like depression and grief and disappointment. Thank you that amidst all of these emotions, um, we like David in Psalm 23 can say, you are with me, God. You are with me. So, Father, as we look at this incredible psalm about worship today, would you teach us something about worship and what it looks like to worship and and the result and the joy that comes with worship? We pray all this, and everyone said, amen. So, Psalm 122, there's really three questions that this psalm um, asks and and really answers. And, And before we get to these three questions, we look at this psalm about worship, Um, I'll kind of give a little background here. It's important for us to understand, especially for this psalm, um, the way it was originally used. Um, So some of these psalms were used for very um, particular um, situations or contexts. Now, you'll notice here in Psalm 120, at the beginning, it has a subtitle. This, This was originally in there. Um, This was not added by the ESV translation, um, but this was originally in there, and and it says, a song of ascents. Now, those of you who have a Bible, um, and you turn back to Psalm 121, or maybe some of you turn forward to Psalm 123, you'll notice it has the same exact title. In fact, if you go back to Psalm 120, and you go all the way through Psalm 134, all 15 of those Psalms, they have this subtitle. A song of a sense, a song of a sense, a song of a sense. That was its original use. It was a, its original use was used to be a song of a sense. Now, I realize none of us really get what that means. So a little history lesson here. The temple, the Jewish temple was built in what city? Jerusalem. Jerusalem was kind of built up on a hill. You had to ascend up it to get to it. And so... Here's what would happen, especially um, in, in, especially after 584 BC, really even a little bit after that, is most of the Israelites, they did not live anywhere near Jerusalem. They had been exiled to different parts of the world. And so the majority of Israelites, they did not live near Israel. They lived down in Egypt. They lived in Assyria area, or they lived, a lot of them, in Babylon. They were scattered everywhere. But where was their place of worship? Jerusalem. And so what would happen is 
a number of these Israelites would make this pilgrimage, they would make this journey to go to Jerusalem to worship. Now, if you read your Bibles, especially the first um, five books of the Bible, um, we've got some sound issues, sorry, mics are dropping and things of that nature, sorry about that. But um, if you read, what you will find is that God had commanded Israel, I want you to go to this place of worship where the temple is going to be in Jerusalem, and three times a year, I want you to go there and worship. And there were different feasts that they would celebrate. Now, um, can you imagine living 100, 200, some of them three, four, 500 miles away from Jerusalem? So, and, and they didn't have cars, and they didn't have planes, they didn't have any of those modern means of transportation. If they wanted to get there, they had to, they had to walk or get back, get on the back of a donkey or a camel, and they would journey there. And so many of these Israelites, they wouldn't make this three times a year journey. It was once a year, maybe less than that. But here's what would happen when these Israelites journeyed. They would typically go there for one of the big feasts, and so um, you would have literally thousands and thousands, if not tens of thousands of Israelites making this journey all around the same time. And here's what would happen. They would get to the place where they could see Jerusalem. They could see the temple. Mind you, they've been journeying, some of them for a few days, some of them weeks, some of them even months. And they could see the temple and they would begin to ascend up. And as they began to ascend up, they started with Psalm 120 and they would sing it. And then they would sing song, Psalm 121 and then Psalm 122. They had all of these memorized, friends. That's pretty impressive. And they would literally sing Psalm 120 through Psalm 134, these songs of ascent as they came up to worship. And I... As I thought about the original use of these psalms, and even in the days of Jesus, this is how they were used, it made me think about what these pilgrims were thinking and feeling as they got to the base of Jerusalem, as they got to the place where they haven't been to worship in maybe a year. And it got me thinking about what they must have felt. Now, I did a road trip during the summer um, in a car with a DVD player and all of these modern, and McDonald's on the way. And I just about pulled out my hair and it only took us two days. And you have these pilgrims traveling, a lot of them with families for days and days. And so can you imagine for the moment for a moment, the kind of exhaustion they felt as they got to the base of Jerusalem. They did not arrive into Jerusalem feeling like their life was in perfect order. They did not come to Jerusalem feeling well or feeling encouraged. They were exhausted. They were tired. They probably had some cranky children. Bottom line, they did not come there with their life together, exhausted. But yet, if you read these songs, you'll notice that even though they were clearly exhausted, tired, distracted, stressed, anxious, fill in the emotion, you'll notice that they sing with such expectation. They come worn out, but yet 
they come with this deep conviction and deep expectation that when I get to the top of this hill, when I get into that temple, and when I begin to worship, I think everything is going to be put right back into its right place. And as I thought about that, it made me think about how we come here on Sunday morning to worship. Now, my morning looks different than you on Sundays because I'm, 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 I'm preaching, I'm preparing. My wife is so kind to take our kids in the morning. Um, while I was on sabbatical, that was not the case. I couldn't give that excuse to my wife. Hey, sweetie, I gotta go to the office and I gotta prepare. She was like, no, 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 <laughs> you're home. Literally, we, as we drove to church, um, we, we were trying to figure out the last time we had drove to church together as a family. It'd been, it'd been years. And here's what I noticed about Sunday mornings. If the devil wants to do a work he has chosen Sunday morning. Has he not? And, and here's what I found. Really, I mean, you, we can kind of giggle about this, but, but, but it's kind of a, a oh, the, there, there's a shocking amount of truth in there that Sunday mornings for some reason can be so exhausting and so tiring. Like, just, will you eat your breakfast, child? Will you, will you not beat up your brother? Will you get, like, anything that could go wrong typically does go wrong on Sunday mornings. And and what I found while I was on sabbatical, as I came to church, I, I realized this, that it's really hard to be on time with children. I realized that I'm really, I don't come in with a smile on my face. I come in needing at least a minute or so to get right with the Lord before I even speak to the Lord through, through worship. Like, like that, but that's just Sunday morning, guys. That's just Sunday morning. We didn't talk about Saturday. We didn't talk about your week at work or your week at home with the children. We, we didn't even talk about that. And, and I think that there's something to be said about seeing our lives as pilgrims. Seeing our lives as pilgrims on this journey that's not very easy. Monday's hard, right? Tuesday's exhausting. Wednesday, you're about ready to give up. And you get tired and you get stressed. There are just certain things that happened to you this week that I'm sure are actually have been brought here this morning. Some of you would actually rather not be here because you got things to do at, at home. Um, and so I think as I read this, I thought, I think that's us. I think that's every Christian who comes to church on, on Sunday morning their life is not put together. It's in shambles. Or they're trying, to best, trying their best to put it together. And I, I don't think we should apologize for that. I don't think we should hide that. I don't think we should try and fake that. I think that we should come here and go, yeah, yeah, my life is a bit of a mess. It is. Um, my wife and my, uh, my son uh, have been in, are in the hospital now. We've been in children's hospital all week long um, because... My son thought it would be an excellent idea to, you know, let's, let's blame it on the three-year-old here. He swallowed something he shouldn't have swallowed. And, and so you can imagine what kind of week we've had. And, and of course, that's kind of the extreme. But I've realized that every week has those kind of things. Every week, a child is swallowing something or disobeying something or something's going on with your marriage. I, I realize that I'm going on and on and on about this, but I just want to get through. You probably came here and you're ready to take a deep breath. Anyone want to amen that? Amen. 
And we shouldn't apologize for that. But what we should do is take the stance that these pilgrims took when they began to sing Psalm 120 and when they sang Psalm 121 and Psalm 122 and sang all 14 of these songs. These songs weren't so much, um, weren't so much acts of worship as much as preparation and expectation to worship. And I hope that you come here on Sunday mornings, not just feeling exhausted, but I hope that you come here on Sunday mornings going, you know what? This is actually where I need to be. This is where I need to be to get my life in order. I need to be at a place where I can worship. Eugene Peterson has this great quote. He says, worship is the strategy by which we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves, and might I add, with interrupting the the garbage of our life, the preoccupation with the struggles of our life, the preoccupation that school starts this week, and some of us are like, oh my gosh, and some of us are, thank you, Jesus. Like, you know, we interrupt this, this preoccupation with everything that is going on in our life. We press pause, and we attend to the presence of God. That is the opportunity we get every single Sunday. Now, Psalm 122 is a psalm about worship, and, and, and it answers three, I think, really important questions. The first question is, what is the result of worship? What, like, what happens to us when we actually worship? The, the next question is, why should we worship? And then this last question, a little more practical, what does worship look like? So let's just take these questions one at a time. Um, what is the result of worship? Now, if you look at verse three, it, it, it's a very poetic statement that's being made. David, our psalmist, he says, Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together. Now, what, is, what does that mean? This, this is a very poetic statement that David is making. Like to really get underneath and understand what David is saying, we gotta understand the poetry of it here. So let's, let's start with this word, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. The Hebrew word for Jerusalem is Yerushalom. Let me say it again, and let me try and see if you can track down a root word that sounds familiar. Yerushalom. This last part, Salem, in our English translation of Jerusalem, it's, it's Shalom. What is shalom? How, how do we translate shalom into English? What's our translation? Anyone know? Peace. Peace. Now, I have to just straight up read a quote out of this book. By the way, I, I do end this book, uh, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. I read this on my sabbatical, and it was just like, it was absolutely incredible. Um, it's, it's a book about discipleship, and, uh, and what Eugene Peterson does is he just um, goes, it's a chapter on one of the Song of Ascents. Each chapter is a chapter on the Song of Ascents, and it's about um, discipleship. And, and here's this chapter on worship, and I love what he says. He says, shalom, or peace. It's one of the richest words in all of the Bible. You can no more define it by looking up its meaning in the dictionary than you can define a person by his or her social security number. I, I love that. He, he's going, 
the English word peace for shalom, it's actually a very cheap translation. It, 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 it gets nowhere near the fullness of what shalom means. It, to define shalom as peace is like me defining you by your social security number. Like that's important information you wanna to keep to yourself and your family, but it doesn't define you, does it? And so he goes on and he says this, shalom rather, it gathers all aspects of wholeness that result from God's will being completed in us. It is the work of God that when complete releases streams of living water in us. And every time Jesus healed, every time Jesus forgave or called someone, right there we have a demonstration of shalom. That, that's what shalom is. It is this complete and utter wholeness in your life. It is you coming to all of the mess of your life, all of the things that are out of place and being able to take a deep breath and go, okay, I think, I think God's got this. Which leads us to our next statement. This, this statement of Jerusalem or Jerusalem is directly related to this statement. Built as a city that is bound firmly together. Here's, here's what David is saying. And here's what the singers were saying as they came up to worship, they said, Yerushalom, Shalom, Shalom, Yerushalom. This is the place that will bind together all of the loose ends of my life. This place where I'm going to worship, I come here with my life just spread out, disorganized, exhausted, tired, disappointed, depressed, name it all. But when I come to Yerushalom, and when I come to worship, I know that God is going to bind it all together. This is the result of worship. This is, this is what worship does. I love this quote. A guy named Gerald Wilson, he writes this. He says, worship is not for me an escape from the threatening pressures of my world by fleeing into the protective arms of my Savior. Instead, Worship is a moment in which I gain the perspective that God is indeed with me in the midst, in the midst of my daily hassles and failures. This is the result of worship, friends. It binds together. It gives us a God perspective of the human perspective that stresses us out. This is the result of worship. Now, now let's move on here. The next question you might ask is, why should we worship? Now, I could probably quickly pass over this and say, well, we should worship because it brings shalom, right? Why should we worship? Well, because it says shalom will occur. But here's what's interesting. The text, Psalm 122, tells us a completely different reason of why we should worship. And it says, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord as was decreed for Israel. So the psalmist is saying, why do we go and worship? It's actually quite simple. God commands us to. Did you know that God commands you to worship him? Um, so you look at the 10 commandments, these big famous commandments that God gives. Do you know the longest commandment? Do you know the most descriptive commandment that God gives? Honor the Sabbath. 
and, and we treat the Sabbath very often as, well, Sabbath is, is taking a day off, right? Kind of. If you really read what God says about the Sabbath, both in Genesis 2 and, 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 and Exodus 20 and, and numerous other places, what you'll find is taking a day off on the Sabbath is only a part of it. Really, the reason why God commands us to take a Sabbath is because within the Sabbath is the command for us to go and worship God by remembering everything he's done for us. And so God says, why should we worship? Well, because I command you to. Now, I realize that that sounds a bit forceful, right? Like if a new Christian ever said, why should I worship? Um, they might be a little turned off if, you're like, if you said to them, well, God commands you to. That, that's why. And really, I mean, that is the right answer. But it seems a bit forceful, does it not? So let's take a step back for a moment and think about this from a different perspective. What is the greatest commandment that Jesus gives us? The greatest commandment. He even says, this is the greatest commandment. To what? To love. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love. That's, that's the greatest commandment. So let's just not think about worship for a moment. Let's talk about this great commandment. The greatest commandment that God gives us is that we would be lovers of God. We would be lovers of his son, Jesus Christ. That we would be lovers of him and what he's done for us. Now, we should also ask another question. The question being this. How do we fall more in love with God? Have you ever thought about that? If this is the greatest commandment, to love God with all my heart, how do I fall more in love with God? How do I become more in love with God? Have you ever thought about that? Now, I don't know if you caught this. I just made two statements that are philosophically profoundly different and you probably didn't catch it because we treat them as the same. I said, how do we fall more in love with God? And then I said, how do we become more in love with God? We often treat those as the same, but, but we need to understand that both of those statements are making a philosophical statement about love. This whole falling in love, this is us Americans, this is, this is what it's all about, right? You fall in love. Why are you in love with him? I just fell in love. Like, like you tripped over something and you, I'm just in love. And so we just fall in love. It's not something that we shape. It's not something we mold. It's not something we practice. It's not something we move towards. It's just something we fall into. This is the American understanding of love. And it's so significant that we have a mascot for this, don't we? And his name is Cupid, right? Cupid shoots someone with their arrow and I'm in love. But I made another statement. How do we become more in love with God? See, that statement assumes that there's a kind of practice or there's a kind of shaping or there's a kind of training that leads to a deeper love. So which one do you guys think it is? Is love something you fall into? The things that you love, did they just happen to you? Did you just fall into them? Or did you actually train them? Did you actually practice them? There's this incredible book. I'm, I'm commending lots of books of you, to you today. And again, read this one on my sabbatical. Uh, um, you are what you love. 
The whole first half of the book, it's really incredible. By the way, I'm going to tie this back to worship. I don't know if you see it yet, but we're getting there. But the whole first half of the book, the whole hundred pages has to do with our loves. Is love something we fall into? Like Cupid just shoots us and, oh, I've fallen in love. Or is the things that we love, have we trained them? And by the way, the next half of the book is pretty much about parenting and worship. So it's really good for you young parents and or even old parents. We all need this. But his point is this. Do not be fooled. You have trained yourself to love what you love. You've trained yourself. When I saw the Huskies loss yesterday, I literally, like something inside of me was like, oh my God. Like I was, I was very disappointed. Did that just happen to me? Or did I train that because I've cheered for the Huskies over years and years and years. Really? You, you get where I'm going? Here's the example that the, the writer uses in his book is he talks about running, how he absolutely hated running but wanted to exercise. And so he thought, well, you know, I guess running, all I have to do is go out through my front door and do this. And so he buys some running shoes and he wants to get some exercise. And so he goes out running and here's what he found. He hated it. And so... He did it the next day out of discipline and he found that he hated it. And then he went another day and he hated it. And he did this for a number of weeks. And you know what happened every single week? He hated it. 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 One day he comes home and he goes, oh, I actually kind of enjoyed that. And then he goes out the next day and what happened? I actually really, that, this was fun. And, 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 and very, very soon he fell in love with running. What happened? Did he fall in love with running? No, no, no. He, he trained himself. And, and then he gives the example with his diet, you know, changing his diet from chocolate, cheeseburgers, and all that good stuff we want to eat all the time. And frankly, I kind of do. Um, and, and transitions to a very high protein diet and no chocolate, no sugars. And for a month, of course, hated it. And then all of a sudden, he no longer desired chocolate anymore. In fact, he longed for, get this guys, get this, this is crazy. He longed for a salad, a salad. What happened? He, he trained. Now you might be going, you're talking about running. You're talking about food. What about people? I don't know about you, but if I neglect a date night with my wife, or if I neglect the opportunity to spend quality time with my wife, my affections for her are directly affected. My affections and my desires for her don't increase. They actually get a little more grumpy, a little more irritable. And so his whole point in this book, and he's right on, is that don't fool yourself. Everything you love, maybe it's shopping, maybe it's food, maybe it's Seahawks, name the things that you love. You've trained yourself to love those things. And you can actually train yourself to love God more. Now, I realize that sounds a bit manipulative, but I think it's a gift that God gives us. You could use the word train, you could use the word practice, or you could use the word shape, mold. That your love for God, we need to understand this. If you want to follow Jesus with all your heart, it's not just gonna happen. 
If you want to follow him with everything you have, it's not just going to happen. There are steps of faithfulness that we must pursue. This is why we're so passionate here at the mission about every day, open up God's word and read what God has to say to you. You know what you're doing when you do that? You're shaping your love for him. You know what happens when you get on your knees and you pray? You're shaping your love for him. You're molding it. You know what happens when you come to church on Sunday? You are shaping and you're molding your love for him. And and so how does this direct ourselves to worship? Worship is, it is the very act of shaping and molding our love for God. If love is something that we can shape and mold, if love is like a muscle that if we work out, it gets bigger, it gets stronger, it gets greater. And if we don't do much about it at all, it begins to atrophy and get weak. If, if, if love is like a muscle, worship is like you going in with a trainer and throwing four rounds of bench press or whatever your workout is. That's what worship does. You're getting stronger. You're flexing that muscle of love for God. And so a really roundabout way to get there, why does God command us to worship him? Because the more we worship him, the more our love for him is shaped and molded. And I can't help but just to quickly make a side remark about our children for a moment. You, not them, are shaping their love for God. You, not them, are shaping their love for God. Don't forget that. Don't miss that. We live in a culture that has empowered our parents to say, let them choose. Give them freedom. Let them figure out who they are. That sounds really cute and all. Kids will never, ever, you know this, kids will never, ever choose on their own who they are. Either you're gonna do it or one of their friends at school is gonna do it or that app or that Facebook post or whatever it is. And so forgive me when I get passionate about families making church worship a priority. It's because you're literally, you're missing the opportunity to shape that love that you need to have for God. You're missing that opportunity for your kids to shape that love. And, and here's, this, here's the hardest thing, guys. You know what happens if you miss a day of Bible reading? You know what happens if you miss one Sunday? Virtually nothing. And so we do it. That's just one Sunday. It's just one, one Sunday. And here's what I found. I just found this. I'm, forgive me for feeling like the expert in this, but here's what I found. The longer people don't go to the church, the longer it takes for them to get back to church. We just see this over and over again, like, oh, we haven't seen them in a few weeks. They come back. And then it's like, oh, we haven't seen them in a few months. And then they come back. And then it's like, we haven't seen them. We're following up, right? Yes, we're following up. We just have it. And, and so you can get by with one week, but don't, 
make worship a priority of your life because it's shaping your love for God. Now, here's this last piece. What does worship look like? Let's go back here. What does worship look like? Here's this last line. To which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. So what does worship look like? What is worship? Well, let's start here. It's giving thanks. Worship is us expressing adoration to God. Worship is us expressing gratitude to God. Worship is us expressing praise and thanksgiving to God. It is us saying, thank you, God, remembering him. But, but this is interesting. To give thanks to the name of the Lord. Did, did you catch that? It does not say to give thanks to the Lord. It says to give thanks to the name of the Lord. This teaches us something about worship here. Why does it say give thanks to the name? The name, the name, the name of the Lord and not just give thanks to the Lord. Well, think about names for a moment. Now, when you name your children, you give them a name because it sounds really cool, right? Most of us were like, ah, I just really like that name. We need to understand that, that ancient Hebrew culture here, that people gave names according to character. So, so a name was meant to reflect their character. It was meant to reflect their nature. And so one of the things that you'll see God do a few times in scripture is God will change someone's name. It's Abraham, uh, not anymore, Abraham. It was Sarai, now it's Sarah. It was Jacob, no, I'm naming you Israel. It's Simon, nope, it's actually gonna be Peter. And if you look at the meaning of all of those names that God or Jesus changes, you'll understand and you'll see that their new name is to reflect their character, their nature, who they are. And the same is true with God's name. Give thanks to the name of the Lord. When you see capital O-L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it is God's personal name, Yahweh. And here's what the psalmist is referring to. And everyone who read this knew this. This is referring to Exodus chapter 34, where God tells Moses his name and tells him the meaning of his name. He says, this is my name and this is what it means. This is who I am. This is my character. This is my nature. And and, and in Exodus 34, it says this, the Lord, now I need to pause here for a moment. Let's get the context. This is Exodus 34. Do you remember what happened when Moses went on the mountain the first time? What did all the Israelites do below? They broke the first commandment immediately. And they build a golden calf and they say, that's our God. And Moses comes down and said, are you kidding me? God just delivered you out of Egypt. And, and by the way, why do you think they made a, a, a calf out of gold? And by the way, if you read into it, it says they rose up and they played. Do you know what played means? It, 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 it's what you do on your honeymoon night. That's what you do. That's, and, and literally, that's what they did. They rose up and they played. 
um, I think it's first or second, second, first Corinthians draws this out. So that, that's what they did. And you know what they were doing? They were just mimicking what they were doing in Egypt. They were mimicking the way that the Egyptians worshiped. And so Moses comes down and goes, are you, are you kidding right now? You, you are completely rejecting the God who has just saved you. Do, you. do you know what you deserve right now? You deserve to be destroyed. And so God says to Moses, here's the deal. I made a promise to these people that I would take them to the promised land. I'm gonna make good on that promise, but I'm not going with you, Moses. And Moses says, well, if you're not going, I'm not going. And I love that, by the way. Say that to God sometime. God, if you're not going, I'm not going. That's actually a really good thing to say. And, and I love this. Again, this speaks to God's character and nature. You know what God says? Okay, all right, I'll, I'll go with you. I'll go with you. And then Moses says, well, okay, if you're gonna keep saying yes, can I see your glory? Can I see your character? Can I see, I wanna see you as you truly are. And God says, if you see my full glory, I'd actually have to kill you. You'd die because I'm that holy and you're not. But here's what I'm gonna do. Remember what's happened here. All the Israelites, they deserve to be killed for what they've done. They deserve the wrath of God. And Moses says, okay, here's what I'm gonna do. You go up on this mountain. I'm gonna put you in this little cleft here and my glory is gonna pass by and I'm gonna cover you. And then when my backside, um, when you no longer can see my front side, I'm gonna put down my hand and you can see my backside and see the backside of my glory. We come to verse six and this is the backside of his, this is back, the backside of his glory. Just imagine what the front side of his glory is. And he says this, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed Yahweh, Yahweh. Now remember, that's his name. It's his name, Yahweh, Yahweh. God, you wanna know who I am, Moses? You wanna know who I am, Israel? You wanna know who I am, Mission Church? This is who I am. I'm a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It actually keeps going on, but I just wanted to deal with this first part. What's mercy? Mercy is God withholding from us what we deserve. You know what Israel deserved in this moment? You know what we deserve? We deserve God's wrath. Mercy is God withholding the wrath we deserve. He's merciful and he's gracious. Do you know what grace is? Grace is giving us, God giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. What, what do we not deserve? His faithfulness, his love, his, his mercy, his joy, his salvation. And God says, this is actually who I am. I dispense mercy infinitely. I dispense grace and it actually has no end. I'm slow to anger. So when you blow it today, it's probably gonna happen. Just remember, he's slow to anger. Your spouse might not be, but he is, he is. And abounding, abounding. It's this picture of it spilling over. 
is abounding in steadfast love. It's love that's steadfast. Another translation could be it's loyal love or it's covenant love. It's the love you are declaring to your spouse on your wedding day. Now, whether you keep that or not is is a whole nother thing. But on your wedding day, just I will remind you of this. You are saying to your spouse, till death do us part. You are saying, no matter what you do or what I do, this ain't ending. And that's what God is saying. That's my kind of love. I know you're gonna sin against me and I'm gonna have to dispense this mercy and this grace. I know you're gonna disappoint me. I know that, you know, a few chapters later, you're just gonna keep blowing it over and over again. But here's the deal. My love just keeps going and going and going and going and going. And it's faithful. This is the name of God. This is who he is to you. Do you know that? And so you come here probably with your life a bit out of order. Maybe part of that out of orderness is some sin, selfishness, pride. Maybe some of what's out of order is there's fear, there's anxiety. And God is saying, don't forget who I am. And do you know where we see this displayed at its climax? Not on Mount Sinai like we see here, on a different mountain on a different hill, on the hill which Christ was crucified. When Christ died, he was pouring out his mercy. He was withholding every bit of wrath we deserve for our sin, and he was taking it upon himself. He was dispensing to us his unending grace, giving us what we don't deserve, namely his righteousness, namely his eternal life. Do you realize that on the cross, a great exchange was made between Christ and you? Jesus got all of the wrath you deserve. You got all of the righteousness he is. That's a pretty good deal. He gets your wrath, you get his righteousness. And he displayed his abounding steadfast love. And Psalm 122 says, give thanks to that. Don't just give thanks to the Lord, but, but why don't you close your eyes and why don't you remember the grace and the mercy poured out for you on the cross? Why don't you remember that, that your anxiety and your fear right now, though it's very real, we can be like David and say, I, I will not fear because I know God's with me. The psalmist is saying, turn your attention to the character and the nature of who God is and what he's done for you. And it will bring into order everything in your life. And I love, and I'll end with this. I don't know who said this. I wrote it down and I didn't quote it. We find who we really are when we praise and thank God for who he is. Let me read that one more time. We find who we really are when we praise and thank God for who he is. We find peace. We find shalom because he desires to give it. We find forgiveness, love, grace, mercy, and hope. Why? Because he desires to give it to you. And so we're gonna take an opportunity to worship now And I hope that this can be a time where we can worship the name of Christ, the name of Jesus, that 
that we can be reminded of everything Christ has done for us. And, and I hope that this would also be a reminder for us next Sunday when we come to church, probably feeling a little like our life is disorganized or in disorder, but we can come here next Sunday. When you're driving in the car, come with an expectation. Come with an expectation that God's gonna do something, that God's gonna bring shalom. And this week, this week, every week, don't miss the opportunity to open up God's word, to pray. Maybe turn on the radio and sing songs of worship because what you're doing in that moment, you're not just worshiping God through prayer, not just worshiping God through reading God's word. You're not just worshiping by singing along to some worship songs. You are forming and strengthening your love for the God that loves you. Father, would you please move our hearts and our affections towards you as we worship you. For those whose lives feel disordered and for those who've come here with some burdens, anxieties, for those who have just other things on their mind like work or chores or something else altogether, would you allow this time of worship to interrupt all of that Would you draw our attention on your presence, God, as we worship you?